I was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, so ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And my prognosis was not great. And so my initial treatment was a long hospital stay initially, you know, kind of in an isolation room for my induction chemo for over a month. And then once they kind of let me out into the world, then I had to go back, you know, pretty much Monday to Friday for for daily treatments. And my chemo plan fortunately lasted three and a half years. And I, I say fortunately because most people don't get to go through with the whole thing because they don't make it. I was one of the fortunate ones, but most people are not. So I was lucky to be able to do that uh, and to be able to get through it. And my ultimate goal was to be around to walk Clark to kindergarten, right? Because my five-year prognosis was not great. And I was thinking five years down the road, that's going to be when right around when he's going to kindergarten. He has his first day of kindergarten in September. And so I want to walk him to kindergarten. That, that's it. Welcome to Miles for Change. I'm your host, Jen DeSalvo, who left you hanging at the end of the last episode, Team and Training, Part 1, Who Are We, TNT. Well, that's because we started to hear from Marty Hogan, but wanted to make sure that we gave you his full story. So on your mark, get set, let's go. Part 2 of Team and Training starts with Marty Hogan. Can I have your first and last name? And uh, kind of like your title, what you would consider yourself. Yes. Um, my name is Marty Hogan, and I live in Chicago, just north of Chicago. Uh, I would say my most important title is uh, I am Clark Phoebe and Shaw's dad, uh, and I'm Whitney's husband. Yeah, and I do a few other things during the week and on weekends. Yeah, like what are those <laughs> things, though? Um, I do a few different things. So I, uh, work in a hospital as a dentist and run the dental residency program. And so I get to work with amazing young people. I also scout hockey on the weekends for a, a team in Canada up in Ottawa. And I coach Clark's baseball team and Clark's hockey team. So I don't think that somebody just grows up and they become a hockey scout. They have to have a little bit of experience. Yeah, so I, I played my whole life. Okay. Yeah, so I grew up in a, a small town outside of Windsor. Uh, I played, ah. you know, junior hockey until I was 20 and then gave up the dream and went to school. Um, so I've always, hockey is my first love. Dentistry is like a close second, but hockey is my first love. And so, yeah, when I moved to Chicago, the team reached out and I've been doing it for like 12 or 13 years now. You know, I'm doing this project. We got to talk about it a little bit. And uh, you have a connection with the LLS and team in training. And, you know, I talked about being a runner and you told me that you're not a runner. So how? Why? What are you? Were you a runner? How are you involved with team and training in the LLS? Like, why are you here? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, the answer, the short answer is no, I was never a runner. I was I was an athlete growing up, and so I did a bunch of sports when I was younger and through high school. And but running was never really one of them for my training for different sports. Running was obviously a piece of that puzzle for cardio and and being in shape and fitness and stuff like that. But I had only done like one race, I guess you could say, and it was for a it was when I was living back in Canada growing up, probably in high school, and it was a I think a five or a ten k for a charity, and I, I did it once for a good cause. And, and that was the only, I, 
I don't want to say it had no meaning to me back then, but when you're a teenager, you're in your own little world, right? You don't really get it. And someone asks you to do it and you're like, yeah, that, that'd be great. Of course I'll do it. And mm-hmm. you raise, you know, a hundred bucks and you do the race and you get a t-shirt and you know, you, you, you do your part. So fast forward to five years ago. So I was living in Chicago and the real kind of long and short of it overnight, literally I was diagnosed with leukemia. So ALL acute lymphoblastic leukemia and my prognosis was not great. And so my initial treatment was a long hospital stay initially, you know, kind of in an isolation room for my induction chemo for, you know, over a month. And then once they kind of let me out into the world, then I had to go back, you know, pretty much Monday to Friday for, for daily treatments. And my chemo plan fortunately lasted three and a half years. And I, I say fortunately because most people don't get to go through with the whole thing because they don't make it. And so I was one of the fortunate ones, but most people are not. So again, I was lucky to be able to do that and to be able to get through it. And so, you know, part of my plan and I was just doing what they told me to do was show up, you know, often for chemo and and stay as healthy as you can. And we'll give you this whole checklist of things you can do and things that you can't do. And so one day I was driving home in Whitney, kind of a side story. Whitney's my wife. She was four and a half months pregnant with our first child who we didn't know boy or girl at the time, but he's now a little boy. His name's Clark. She was pregnant with Clark when I was first diagnosed. And so uh, after Clark was born, you know, Whitney was with me literally every minute of every day. She was working remotely. And so she would set up her office in my hospital room when I was in isolation. So she'd be with me from seven to seven and then they'd kick her out at 7 p.m. and she'd be back the next morning at seven. So she did that for way too long. And then once I was let go and was doing things as an outpatient, again, she would come with me every day. She was driving me most of the time because I wasn't feeling great and things like that. So she would drive me and again, kind of set up shop in my little treatment room and, and bring her computer and do phone calls and emails and stuff like that. And then after Clark was born, I was going down by myself. And that was kind of a big step for me too. of like, okay, you know what, like our life has changed. We now have kid and I need to, I need to suck it up and like do this on my own. That's something that I wanted to do. I guess before I was just relying on her one day I was driving home solo and I kind of had a meltdown to her about, you know, I'm sick and tired of everyone telling me what I can't do. And every time I go to the hospital, I leave with a checklist of you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. You can't do this. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do a marathon or I'm going to do the marathon. And she said, oh, okay, that, that's great. Like, that's awesome. And I'm like crying, right? And having a, a mini pity party. And I said, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do Chicago. And she's like, I, I know, babe, like, that's great. <laughs> and I, I'm like, she's not really getting it, right? It's like end of July, first week of August, I forget. And like 2018? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm like, I'm going to do it in October. And she was like, what? And I'm like, I'm going to do it in October. And it was more of me just like my like F you moment, right? Not to my medical team because I love them mm-hmm. dearly. I, I, they are family to me. So it wasn't an F you to them, but it was just an F you to the situation, I guess you could say. And, and to cancer. And I'm like, and so Whitney's like, well, babe, you can't, uh, one of my side effects, I, I lost feeling in my hands and feet and my left leg. And she's like, well, you can't feel your feet. And I'm like, I know. 
She's like, well, that's going to be hard to run. I was like, well, I'll, I'll figure it out. That was kind of just always my mentality and our mentality, right? Like we'll, we'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, you need to talk to Dr. Altman. Like she needs to give you the sign off. I'm like, don't worry. I'm not going to do anything stupid. Like, you know, my ultimate goal, right. And my ultimate goal was to be around to walk Clark to kindergarten. Right. Cause my five-year prognosis was not great. And I was thinking five years down the road, that's going to be when right around when he's going to kindergarten. And so I want to walk him to kindergarten. That That's it. That's coming and up. And so it is in this September. Yeah. Wow. He has his first day of kindergarten in September. Yeah. Yeah. So big, big day for us. Big, 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 probably bigger day for me than for him. He's excited and he loves school. But when I'm like at the front of the kindergarten sobbing, he's probably gonna be like, I, I'm the one that's supposed to be crying, not my dad. <laughs> not my 40 year old dad. Why is my why is my dad on the grass of our school crying? Oh, but it has, he's not like, I can't go. Dad needs me. I gotta go home. Dad needs me. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Right. All the other kids are going to be crying and their parents are trying to push him in the door and he's going to want to run in and I'm going to be holding his hand like sobbing on his shoulder. But anyway, so, you know, I said, I'm not going to do anything stupid. You know, my goal, like my yes or no question was any decision that we did and that we made, is that going to help me, you know, reach my goal, which was to walk him to kindergarten. And so, you know, I fast forward, I, I got everything checked off by my medical team. And so I, I was like, well, I missed the registration. And so how do I get a bib? And so I'd, I'd heard about LLS and I'd seen flyers in the cancer center and things like that. And so I, I sent an email, a random email to somebody in LLS and just said, Hey, my name's Marty. I live in Chicago. I'm undergoing treatment for leukemia any chance I could get a bib. I know I missed registration. I will do anything that you guys need. And I get a response and they were like, yeah, sure. I think we can do that, but we have a minimum requirement. So I said, that's fine. Let's do it. So I was fortunate to get a bib. And then that following October, like a few months later, a couple months later, I ended up doing my first Chicago marathon uh, and now I'm kind of hooked. So that's, that's the real, like, kind of was a rambling story, but short, short, short version of how I got involved with LLS initially. Yeah. yeah so that was my first Chicago marathon. Yeah. It's a, so how many miles a day were you running up till this time, up till your diagnosis? Yeah. So I was not really <laughs> running any, uh, I, I was walking. Mm -hmm. And so, okay. so, so my first two marathons that I did, including that first one that we were just talking about, uh, I walked the entire thing. And so I wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable because of my balance and my feet. I was still kind of learning how to, how to deal with that, like not being able to feel my feet. And so I wasn't real confident in my ability to run into jog. Uh, at that point, I've since kind of learned, uh, but at that time I wasn't. And so I walked it. And so my walks to train, I'd throw Clark in the stroller and we would go for, anywhere from like a three to five mile walk mm -hmm. every day. And I, I was feeling okay. I was still, you know, getting treatment often and eating pills every day and night. And so I, I wasn't feeling great, but I was like, that that's my tunnel focus of like marathon. I've got two and a half months or two months or whatever it was, I'm doing it. And so I literally printed out blank calendars and I lay, I, I Googled one night, like, how to train for a marathon in two months. And then I had to like edit that. I was like, how to walk and train for a marathon in two months. And they were like, 
they, you know, of course you can find anything on Google, right? So they laid out how many miles a day you do. So I had blank calendars and I wrote the number of miles on each day and I followed it to a T. And so once a week, it was like a longer walk and I'm, I'm making air quotations and my longer walks were like seven or eight miles. But my normal day to day was like three to five. Um, and Clark was with me the whole time. And so he was, he was my, my training buddy and my motivation. So, uh, that's what I was doing leading up to like my first Chicago marathon was walk three to five. And then once a week, probably similar to how like a a real runner would train, you Uh know, multiple shorter runs. And then once a week you do a longer one, my distances were just much shorter and I was walking, not running. You know, so that that was the difference. And yeah, so that's kind of how I how I mapped it out. You said you weren't feeling the best on a day to day basis still because of popping the pills and all that kind of stuff for um, for the condition. But getting out and walking, did you find that 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 helped at all with your overall well-being or how did how did that work? Yeah, I did. And so I have found for me, I can I can only speak for me, obviously, that if you're going to feel crappy it's better to get out and do stuff and feel crappy because then at least you kind of forget about it sometimes. Right. So when you sit at home and you sit on the couch or you're in your hospital bed or whatever, which I I've done, your mind is your worst enemy. And so your mind can be like your best friend, right? Cause you can like think your way into doing things, I guess. I don't know how to, how to say that, but when you're laying in a hospital bed at two in the morning your brain runs your life. And so it takes you to dark places and and no matter how many pills they give you to try and put you to sleep or how many appointments you have with your psychologist, like you can't get some of those nightmares out of your mind. Right. And so that was a challenge and still is a challenge for me to be a hundred percent honest. So keeping busy has always kind of been like who I am. I'm just, I I like to be busy Mm -hmm. well long before I got sick. And so when I was feeling crappy and I would stay in the house or I would, I would sit down or even when I, I was like, man, I, I don't know if I can get out of bed today. I, I had to. And so I, and sometimes me being busy, as silly as this sounds, I would make a list of like errands to do. And it was like, go put gas in the car. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not making that up. That sounds ridiculous because people, but I'm like, okay, this I morning, don't think it does because I am the same type of person. So yeah, I get exactly and, where you're coming from. Yeah. And I'm like a sticky note person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Whitney and most adults are, are, they have things in the cloud and on, on devices. And I just have sticky notes. So I have sticky notes all over our dining room table, which drives Whitney crazy. But I would, I would make lists and it's like, go to the bank put gas in the car. Yeah, (laughs) there we go. You know, all these different things. And they were most 35, 25, whatever age people be like that. That's like, that's a joke. (laughs) Right. But I'm like, no, you know what? Some days like that was really challenging for me to do, like get my fat ass out of bed Mm -hmm. and brush my teeth, get changed, go downstairs and, and try and like, check off my checklist. Mm-hmm. Right. And so walking or running or chasing our kids around or whatever, taking the dog for a walk was just things that really are good for your body physically. You know, there's that part, but also for me, it was a way for me not to sit and think about dying. 
on days where I didn't go for a walk, like A, I kind of missed it because that was Clark and I's time to to just hang out the two of us. But I also would find that like my brain would take me to really bad places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, you know, from a physical standpoint. Yeah, of course, uh, I, I didn't lose as much weight as I was as I was hoping. Uh, but from a mental standpoint, you know, it's, it's good for your muscles and your heart and all that stuff. Yeah, of course. But from a mental standpoint, for me, it was like, yeah, I know that if I'm going to be gone and again, just to give people an idea of like my pace, mm-hmm. you know, I was walking at like a 15 to 16 minute mile, which is like pretty slow. No, that's really um, fast for well, walking. I, may, may, maybe for walking. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't going for a stroll through the mall like a like a, a granny or a grandpa. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was walking with a purpose, but um, but it, it was long. Right. So for me to do a, a six mile walk with Clark, it was 90 minutes. You know, and so, which was great. And that was 90 less minutes where I knew I was going to sit inside and have my brain play tricks on me. Yeah. What hospital did you get treatment at? So I was treated at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, which is downtown Chicago. Okay. Uh, And I kind of had a second home uh, up on the 21st floor of Galter. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like an incredible place. Yeah. I spent a lot of my, all of my in-house time like when I spent days and and weeks and months overnight uh at Prentice Hospital which is across mm-hmm. the street yeah uh up on the 16th floor of Prentice so the people up there are absolutely amazing like they you know the nurses everybody on Prentice and on Galter I kind of want to know what your chemo look like because I know that there's so many different regimens and I don't think people really understand um like how some people can take a pill and live their entire life, you know, taking a pill once a day or something. But others have a very strict regimen and yours lasted for three years. So what did chemo look like? Initially, uh, it was, you know, depending on the week and it was all broken down into like either 49 day cycles or 56 day cycles or 84 day cycles. So I kind of didn't really live my life on like a... January, February, March calendar. Mm-hmm. I w- I always knew I was like day fourteen of fifty six, okay, or day twenty four of eighty four, and I, you know, I had my my plan on paper, and I would just check off the days, and I knew that depending on which part of my plan I was at, I was you know getting IV infusions Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you know pills. You know, I, I took pills every day for three and a half years. So I had like oral pills every day, but the infusions weren't every single day for three and a half years. They were, again, depending on where I was at in my cycle, sometimes three days a week, sometimes less frequent than that, sometimes Tuesday, Thursday, it kind of depended. But I was I was downtown on Galter, you know, all the time and, and in between your infusions, they're obviously watching you like a hawk. And so, you know, you're down there for blood draws every day and, and little little or big things pop up side effect wise that leads to MRIs and CTs and ultrasounds and meetings with specialists and all that stuff. So it was honestly like, you know, it was, it was a full-time job. Yeah. Back Um, in the hospital when you don't have treatment and didn't expect it. For sure. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, like, you just literally learn to like roll with the punches in, in every time I would go down there, I always had a duffel bag in the trunk with a change of clothes because I, you know, we found out early on that sometimes I would go down and they'd draw labs and something would pop up and they would admit me. 
right? Uh-huh. So I, I would just stick around for a couple nights. Fortunately, you know, I'm knocking on wood, that didn't happen often, but there were times. So it kind of just was like, all right, I'll take my my oldest t-shirt and basketball shorts and an extra toothbrush, throw it in the duffel bag. And that the duffel bag kind of just stayed in the trunk all the time. It was kind of like our, our jumper cables. Earlier, yeah. you said it wasn't an F you to the medical team. And one of the things that I've one of the things I've been seeing with a lot of the people I talk to who have gone through a cancer diagnosis is that um, they love their medical team. Mm-hmm. What was that relationship like with the people who were treating you on a daily basis? Yeah. Um, they. So my my medical team, I, I don't even know what to say to them or about them and i i literally say that when i see them i'm like i don't know what to say to you guys i've i've written you letters i've tried to find stuff that's meaningful uh to me that i've passed along to them uh and i'm like i i don't know what to say other than thank you right to people that that help save your life and so you know, my relationship and our relationship with them from day one was one of like trust and transparency. And so that's what I, I asked them to do. And I said, like, please promise me that you will always, always, you know, be honest and just tell me the facts. And I really wanted to know statistics. Uh, Whitney did not. Mm. And so, um, and there were times where, um, where we would talk about statistics after she was out of the room. Mm-hmm. And so they would, you know, we'd be talking and they'd be like, okay, we, we have some data we can share with you or research or whatever. And I was like, is this something she wants to hear or doesn't? They're like, mm, it's up to you, Whitney. And she would go out in the waiting room and we would, we would talk numbers because I just wanted to know. And I said, you guys, please let me know, even if they're not good, right? I'm, I'm an adult. I can handle it. Hit me with it. Um, and so we did. And so they told us the good, the bad, the ugly and everything in between. And I just wanted to know that because we kind of promised ourselves, Whitney and I, that we weren't going to go on the Google machine, right? Uh, because that can be a really bad, bad way to gather your medical information. And, you know, you have, uh, you know, Rick in his basement, you know, typing up facts on Wikipedia that's, you know, completely incorrect and you're clicking on that and then your mind goes to even darker places, right? Mm-hmm. So we we promised ourselves, especially early on, that we wouldn't Google stuff and that we would ask Dr. Altman and her team anything. So we would go in with questions coming out the behind, right, about mm-hmm. stuff. And they, they and I, I said this to them, last week and it's been five years like i i see them more than i see my family they are my family and i said every time i come in here you guys treat me like i'm the only patient in the world like just amazing people and and i felt like and i asked them i'm like please make decisions as if i'm your loved one Mm-hmm. Right. So think of like the person that you love the most. And sometimes there were forks in the road where we had to make, you know, major decisions, not, you know, it's not, uh, you know, something small where it's like, ah, it's just a little tiny procedure or whatever. That's, you know, if you make the wrong decision, you go back and fix it in a month. It's like, if we made the wrong decision, 
like they're planning my funeral. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're big, big forks in the road decisions of things to do that Whitney and I would talk for hours and hours and hours and, and make our list of pros and cons. And we'd sometimes sleep on it and talk about it the next day and talk about it the next day. And then we'd show up to our appointment with two pages of questions and they would sit and listen to it all. And at the end, sometimes I'd look at them and say, okay, guys, if, you know, Jessica, if I'm your husband, what are we doing? And she'd be like, well, I think we should do this. I said, okay, let's go. Let's do it then. Like, I, I trust you with my life. Let's let's do that. And it was just a, like, is and, you know, was and is just an amazing relationship. My nurse, Katie, that first marathon, she walked 12 miles with me. You're kidding me. Walked 12 miles with me. Yeah, to talk about, like, the types of people. She lived in the Gold Coast, and so she was like you know, worried about me. So like before the marathon, I'm going in for like fluids through my IV and like all these things. Right. And then she's like, I'm going to be near my apartment. She, she lived right near Northwest. And she's like, I'm going to have a sign. I'm going to give you a hug when you walk by. And so I saw her and so go over to the side, give her a hug. And she's like, you look great. Like it's not like mile four. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm like feeling like a million bucks. Right. And she's like, I go, Katie, you want to walk for a little bit? And she's in like jeans and a T like in a, in running shoes. And I'm, and she's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, come on, come on, come on. So she starts walking two and a half hours later. We're like on the South side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I think I have a blister and like my hips hurting. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh my God, Katie. I'm like, we're, we like turn around and we see the skyline like way in the background. I'm like, oh. Katie, we're, we're down like by white Sox stadium right at this point and i'm like katie we are so far from your house right now i said i thought you were walking like five blocks with me Mm -hmm. she's like i know so did i but like we just got chit-chatting and i kind of just lost track of time like me too i'm sorry she goes i think at the next like light up here i'm gonna give you a hug and leave you and i'm gonna take an uber back home (laughs) (laughs) and that's what she did (laughs) oh my gosh so i'm like that is she a distance athlete is she uh, an endurance no, athlete? Oh, wow. No, that's, no. That's even yeah. bigger. So like, yeah, so that was like Sunday, marathon Sunday. So Monday morning, I like wake up to an email from Katie. She's like at work, like saving people's lives in the cancer center. She's like, Marty, you did such a great job. Like, I'm so proud of you. How are you feeling? And I'm like, I feel okay. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sore, but I, I, I like feel pretty good. I'm like, how about you? She's like, my hip is killing me. Like, I wasn't planning on walking that far. <laughs> but like, that that gives you a snapshot of like the type of individuals that they are. Like Katie took three hours unplanned out of her Sunday to walk with one of her patients. With the treatment, and you had just gotten chemo on Wednesday and you were still running with a, a port, right? Yeah, yeah, I still have a port right now. Yeah, I'm pointing to it. You can't see it on my on the screen, babe. Maybe not. And just right so there. people understand, that, that is that something is that goes right into your chest, and it is where yeah. they hook up the the IV, the, IV, the needle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. So I get my yeah. <laughs> That's so. I, honestly, I kind of do too. Like, ironic that when I was in high school, and in high school, if you donated blood at mm-hmm. the high school, we would get like you'd get out of class, and then you get like Oreos, and so that sounds really bad to say, but I was like, yeah, it's obviously for a good cause that when you're in ninth and 10th grade, you don't really get it, mm-hmm. but you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm helping someone else. And so that's, that's really neat. I'd love to do that. And I get to get out of calculus class and I get Oreos 
right? Because yep. after you donate blood, you get to sit for like 30 minutes and lay down or whatever. And every single time I donated blood, I would pass out every single time. Yep. And so I, so then, you know, fast forward, whatever, 20 years and they're drawing blood like every four oh, hours, no, <laughs> like literally every four hours. So they, they put a pick line in my arm, oh. which is great because they don't have to poke you every time. Right. So I had the pick line in my arm for like 11 months. And then when they took the pick line out, then they put the port in my chest. And so I would much rather get poked in the port than have them like stick my arm. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm, I'm on team, team port, <laughs> not team poke the arm. <laughs> not team poke the arm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I still have a port. It's, it's my little, my little piece of me, my little button. It's an astronomical difference, right? I mean, you're, you're looking at, so back, if you go even farther back in the 70s, go back to the 50s where we talked about, uh, you know, leukemia victims, right? Because there was no cure. There was no treatment. It was, if you were diagnosed, I mean, the odds were pretty well stacked against you. I mean, people survived by the grace of God, but there was no real treatment. There was no great outcome. Um, so childhood leukemias in particular back, you know, in the, in the 50s, devastating. Um, flash forward to today, and many of them are, are you know, it's a, it's a very high percentage of survival. Um, the unfortunate part, uh, to a large extent, is some of those childhood cancers, even though we have great survival rates today, the treatments haven't changed all that much in decades. And so we're still using, uh, you know, toxic uh, chemotherapies uh, in, uh, instead of newer. We've got some newer treatments coming up, don't get me wrong, but that's where we're trying to move towards. That's right. It's not just about beating cancer, it's about making sure we've got a good quality of life and doing so, and eliminating some of those detrimental side effects. You know, kids who went through a multi-year protocol to beat their leukemias sometimes have learning disabilities and other health issues, as do adults. Uh, and so we want to make sure that the newer treatments that we're using are much more targeted uh, genetic therapies, immunotherapies, using the body's own defenses against cancer where we can. We've seen remarkable success with some of those CAR T therapies that are out there today and some of the other immunotherapies that we've helped find. The work never ends because diagnoses never end, right? So as long as people are getting diagnosed, as long as we need to fund research, as long as we can get enough treatments in people's hands, we're still going to be doing the things that we need to do to make sure that all those research dollars all the technology, all the medications, all the therapies that have been uh, created, they're able to get quickly and easily into people's hands. So we want to make sure that the systems of care are in place to ensure that you know people get diagnosed accurately and, and quickly, that they get the right treatment for their disease. Uh, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's sustainable. Marty. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. What's going on? Did you walk Clark to kindergarten? <laughs> I did. Awesome. I did. I did. Uh, he did not cry. I did uh, quite extensively, but it was amazing. Well, you thought you were going to, so. I knew I was going to. All right. Yeah, full disclosure. That was a given. I, um, I had just turned on my recording and recorded because I wanted your reaction of you walking Clark to kindergarten. Get out of here. Are you okay with that? 
Yes, of course. Okay. Of course. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit. Now stop I feel with like that. every time I talk to you, I'm gonna be recorded. No. I have to watch what I say if I swear and <laughs> say an appropriate thing. Hey, hey, I'm not gonna record everything now. I I make no promises. It's kind of what I do. Anyways, big thanks to Marty Hogan. That's it for this episode of Miles for Change. But don't worry, there will definitely be more. You haven't heard the last of the LLS and team and training group. There's just so much more out there. I will make sure to drop those in the coming weeks. But right now, it is Chicago Marathon Week. So get ready, get set, let's go and hit that finish line. Get to